In this episode, we start a new series entitled For the People in the Back, which aims to talk about the aspect of sitting in the back row spiritually. Dr. Justin Hillhouse kicks off this new series by teaching on David from 1 Samuel 16. When David was in the field as a shepherd, he didn't waste his time just watching his flock. He learned a variety of traits that translated into important aspects of being a king. Now let's hear from Justin Hillhouse as he expounds upon this thought. All right, good morning, gentlemen. How are y'all doing this morning? Woo, I'll tell you what. If you have your copy of God's Word, open it up, turn it on. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to be. As you're turning there, let me just kind of give you an update on John Mark. First of all, uh, if you were here on Sunday, you kind of found out uh, he uh, just kind of was not doing well. And so he... Uh, just kind of felt uh, sick and ill between services, and so um, he was able to to get home. Uh, he's good; everything is fine. He will be back uh, this weekend. But we are just asking him to, hey, why don't you just kind of slow down and take some time to recover, okay? And so uh, he will uh, be here, of course, then next Tuesday as we start this new series. And this new series that we have is just simply called "For the People in the Back Row." For the people in the back row. And when you think about this series and you think about this uh, series title, you, you got to, uh, what pops in your mind for the people in the back row? What, what, what kind of idiom pops in your mind? Wagers? Yes. Yes. Wagers. What else? That's right. Okay. Very good. Yeah. What? Huh? Latecomers. What else? Huh? Baptist. What do you what what comes in your back row Baptist, right? That's what we're thinking of is back row Baptist. Now, I don't know why we as Baptists, we always kind of get the raw end of the deal because you never hear about like the choir loft Church of Christ kind of people. You never hear about the left sitting Lutherans. You don't hear about, you know, the the middle row Methodists. You don't hear about anybody, but it's always the Baptists, right? It's the back row Baptist. And we, uh, that's just kind of what we think. And, and please understand this is that the title of this series really has nothing to do with the position that you sit in in church, nor does it have to do with your denomination. But when we say that phrase, back row Baptist, what does it infer? What does it infer? Me? Okay, I'll pray for you, but what else? What what does it infer? You're a back row Baptist. What? Apathy. Apathy, What else? Slackers? Not Not wanting to engage, right? Not wanting to engage. What else does it come to mind when you think about that? Somebody else will do it. Yeah? Small bladder. bladder. (laughs) Spoken like a true old man right there. (laughs) What else? First in line to furs. That's right. Or Lubies, whichever your choice is. Are those things, are those places still around? There's one Lubies. There's one Lubies in Plano. I know that. I don't know if Furs made it through 
the pandemic. But let's be honest, in every organization, whether it's in church, whether it is at home, whether it is in the office, whether it is in school, there are always those back row sitters. Now, I don't know about you, but I sat in the back row in school all the time. Whether I was doing good in, the, in class or whether I was not doing good in class. I can remember I would not be doing good in class. And my dad, he would always talk to me and be like, listen, you need to move up to the front row. And I'm like going, no, I'm not moving up to the front row. You know, why? Because that's just not where I like to sit. I didn't like to sit in the front row. I like to sit in the back. And again, this sermon series has nothing to do with the location of where you sit in church or where you sit in the office or where you sit in your family. But we do all sit in the back row in some form or fashion in some aspect of our lives. It could be we sit in the back row spiritually. We could sit in the back row emotionally. We could sit in the back row psychologically. There are those of us that we are very hands-on in business and we sit up there in the front row and we are engaged. But when it comes to our family, we just kind of fade back into the background and ah, we'll just let my wife handle that. There are some of us, we are so engaged and engrossed in our hobbies, yet when it comes to charity or serving, we'll let somebody else do that. There are those that are rock stars in church and they're always out front and they're serving, but then there are maybe some addictions that are going on that they won't address and so they choose to take a back seat. There are some that God is calling them to do something, asking them, hey, will you go serve me? Will you go over here? Will you go over there? Will you do this? Will you do that? And yet they, I'll just sit back. You know, the idiom, back row Baptists, is defined by this, by the internet. It is a Baptist who sits in the back row to sleep, in hopes not to get called out. That's how Google defines it. But that's not what this series is about. This series is not about you just kind of sitting there being lazy and us trying to motivate you. Because you see, sometimes we're sitting in the back row just because that's where we like to sit. And that's, that's okay, but guess what? God calls us out. He calls us out of obscurity. And when you look in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it is David that is just sitting there doing what he does. And then out of nowhere, God calls him out of obscurity to be placed as king over Israel. And so let's look at this passage real quick. And there's a famous verse in here. And it's a verse we're going to allude to. It's a verse we're going to talk to. But it's not the main focus. So let's look in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we'll read verses 4 through 12. And it says this, Samuel did what the Lord said. 
When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come here in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and, and thought, and this is his firstborn, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. Uh, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Verse 8, then Jesse called his next eldest, Abimadad, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen him either. Jesse then had uh, Shemaiah uh, pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for him and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now for a lot of us, when we read this passage and we look at it, we focus on 1 Samuel um, 16, and we look in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider the appearance of his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at these things. Uh, people look at, look at people, uh, look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And no doubt, this is a great passage, one that we should hold near and dear to our hearts, one that we should focus on. However, there are two verses that stick out in this passage that I would like to simply discuss for a few moments today. And it's verses 10 and 11 in 1 Samuel 16. For it says this, Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep sent for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. That phrase, he is tending the sheep. If you have your Bible, underline that phrase. He is tending the sheep. I only have one thought today, all right? I only have one point and all God's men said, that's right, we're going to get out early. But understand this. Here is the simple point, okay? The point is this. The thought is this. Use your time wisely while you're in the field. Use your time wisely while you are in the field. When you look at verse 5, Samuel replied, Yes, I come in peace. You see, God called Samuel to go out and to ask uh, and to go out and to find the next king of Israel because Saul had become a disappointment. 
And so Samuel is on his way and he shows up in Bethlehem. And when he shows up in Bethlehem, here is the high priest, the high priest of Israel. He shows up. And so everybody all of a sudden freaks out. It's kind of like if John Mark walked up to your house unannounced and just knocked on the door and you'd be like, uh, what happened? <laughs> what What's going on? Why? Why are you here? Because Bethlehem is just a small little town. Have you ever been through those towns that are so small you didn't even know you went through them? Have you been through that? Personal story. I was driving through Oklahoma on 69 right up here. There is a town called Savannah, Oklahoma. Are y'all with me on this? Okay. Don't speed through Savannah. Oklahoma. I'm driving through Savannah, Oklahoma, and guess what? I get pulled over by the cop. The cop gets out, walks to my car. This true story, this really happened. He walked up to the car. He said, I pulled you over for speeding. And I was like, well, I didn't even know this, the, the speed limit changed. He goes, well, you sped through town. And I said, where is town? And he goes, you just drove through it. And I looked behind me out the window, and I looked at him and said, I don't see a town. I got a speeding ticket, okay? I didn't even know I drove through Savannah because it's so small. That's Bethlehem. It is so small, nobody knows it exists. The only way people know that it's there is because it's placed on a map. And today we only know that Savannah, Oklahoma is there because it's on our GPS. Nobody knows it's there. And so when Samuel shows up, Everyone all of a sudden freaks out because that is not a place that Samuel normally goes. He doesn't normally go to Bethlehem because there's nothing there in Bethlehem. They don't even have a restaurant. They don't even have a blinking yellow light. There's nothing there. It is just a bunch of farmhouses and fields. And so when Samuel shows up, look at what it says. Yes, I have come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, Samuel says, listen, I've come to have church. What? You've come to have church here? Why would you come here to have church? And then he says this, consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. They consecrated, and then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and and he thought to himself, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He's come to Bethlehem. He's come to have church. He gathers the people together. He specifically gathers Jesse and his sons together. And he consecrates them. He sets them aside. He spends some special time with these guys. And they don't even know why he's there. He shows up and he says, hey. Why don't you come on over here and pray with me? Why? I, Samuel, we don't know you. I mean, we've heard of you. We know who you are. But who are we? Why in the world would you be here? Why are you sitting here praying with us? Samuel says, I want to pray with you. I want to spend some time with you. Who are we? And then look here. Samuel is there for the purpose of finding the next king of Israel. And look at what it says. is When they arrived, there's Elab, and he's standing there, and he's thinking to himself, this is the guy. This is the firstborn. And yet, God says, 
this isn't the guy. This is not the guy that is supposed to lead Israel. We can tell how men look, but God can tell how men are. You with me on that? We can tell how men look, but God truly can tell who and what they are. He judges their heart. And we often form a mistaken judgment of character on people because we only see them from the outside. We only see their uh, physical appearance. We only see what they physically do, yet we do not know the values that they have in their heart. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct and according to their deeds, their deeds deserve. This is, this is why it is important for us as men is to guard our hearts and to keep our hearts pure. It is important for us as men is to guard our hearts and to keep our hearts pure because it doesn't matter what the guys out here think about me. It only matters what God thinks about me. And here's the deal. God is not looking at what I look like or at what I do. He's looking right here in my heart. He doesn't care about all that other stuff. He cares about what's going on in my heart and in my mind and in my soul. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. Eventually, if you're putting enough bad stuff into your heart and into your life, guess what? Eventually, it is going to come out. Whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're watching, eventually it is going to come out and it will be seen. You may be able to cover it up for a long, long time. But eventually it's going to come out. So guard your heart. In the uh, Beatitudes, Jesus is talking and he says this in Matthew 5 eight. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. When our hearts are the way they ought to be, it honors God. It was George Ebert that says this, God sees hearts as we see faces. God sees hearts as we see faces. I don't know about you, but it's always bothered me, and I've had several guys tell me this. They'll walk up, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, that guy over there, he, he's a good guy, and I'm a good judge of character. You are? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've met you. I've known you for like five minutes, Justin. You, you got good character. Really? Do you know me? It always scares me when guys sit there, and they think that they are good judges of character, because let me tell you what, you don't know me. Uh, yeah, you don't, <coughs> you don't know me. And guess what? I don't know you. And there are some things maybe that you're doing in your heart and in your life that maybe even your spouse doesn't know about. And your spouse doesn't truly know who you are. But I tell you this, God does. 
God knows who you are and he knows exactly what's going on inside of your heart. Now, no doubt, these seven men, Elab, he was set aside, Arabib, Shammah, these sons of Jesse, they were presented to Samuel. These are good men. These are upstanding men. These are honorable men. But these are men that God is not quite looking for. They are spiritual men. They went to church. When Samuel said, hey, let's have church, they all showed up. He said, hey, we're having church. I'm in. Let's have a little worship session. Let's have a little prayer time. All of, this, all of these things are good. There is nothing wrong with these guys. But God is not just looking for guys that, are, that there's not really anything wrong with. But he's looking for something just a little bit more. Now, mind you, these guys are having a spiritual moment. And where's David? He's out in the field. Doing what? Tending the sheep. You have all these great leaders gathered around here in town. And David is tending the flock. You have his older brothers, all of his family, rubbing shoulders with the most spiritual man in all of Israel, Samuel. They're rubbing shoulders with him. They're laughing. They're joking. They're praying. They're singing. Everybody's out. Again. Oh, where's David? He's stuck out in the field, caring for the sheep. And when all the other sons are overlooked, Samuel says, Jesse, do you have any more sons? And what does Jesse say? Well, there's one more. And it's David. And he's not here. Well, where is he? Well, he's out busy doing what he's supposed to do. Which is what? Looking after the sheep. Verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. David is the youngest of all the sons of Jesse. His name means beloved. Which would basically lead us to think that David, being the youngest son, is the favored son. And what does the favored son always get? Anything he wants, right? He's the baby of the family. And so guess what? Life is not as hard as, uh, for him as it is for everybody else. And that can be good, but that can also be bad, can it not? The baby of the family sometimes has the most problems. Are you with me? Do we have any babies of the family in here? Yeah, it's good to be the baby, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Just go ahead and admit it. We all hate you for it, but that's okay. <clears throat> I'm kidding. But he's the youngest. And so privately, he is probably more than likely dad's and mom's favorite. But yet it is tradition and also it is the rightful thing to present his oldest son first. And why is that? Because the oldest son has seniority. The oldest son has the most experience, does he not? Why? Because he's the oldest. 
He's been around the longest. And it was dad that invested probably the most time in him because he was the only child around. And of course, being the oldest, you're always proud of the oldest, right? Why do you think the middle child always has all the problems? Because they don't get any attention. Why? Because the oldest and the youngest get the most attention. Am I right? Do we have any angry middle children in here? Yes, see, look at all the hands going up. Okay? The oldest and the youngest, they always get the most attention, and it is the oldest that always has the most seniority. They have the most life experience. They have the most maturity. Why? Because mom and dad are depending on the oldest to kind of help them raise everybody else. And so they've been through life a lot more. They have more life experience. They know about leadership and yet David is still out in the field just living this quite frankly boring and very easy life tending the sheep what does a young boy have to offer that the oldest son doesn't absolutely nothing you know there are many people today that we know that are famous that came up out of obscurity and this is really where David comes from. He comes from up out of obscurity. Uh, Albert Einstein, I don't know about if you know that, he failed eighth grade math. Did you know that? Albert Einstein failed eighth grade math. Walt Disney was fired from the Kansas City Star because his editor felt that he, and I quote, lacked imagination and had no good ideas. Colonel Sanders, at the age of 62, with a $105 Social Security check in hand, pitched his chicken recipe to restaurants. And according to some reports, he pitched his idea and was rejected by 1,009 people. The first time Jerry Seinfeld ever got on stage at a comedy club, he froze and the audience booed him off. Sidney Portier, who died earlier, uh, or latter part of last year, was told to become a dishwasher. Sidney Portier. Oh, however you pronounce it. Goodness gracious, you guys. Did you know that Steven Spielberg was rejected from film school three times? He was rejected from film school three times. And while all these men worked hard and they persevered through David, well, David, he just simply stayed faithful. He loved God with all of his heart. He stuck to being a shepherd in the field. And God raises up and uses those that are just continuing to be faithful in doing their job, business, day after day, year after year. No matter what anyone else sees, no matter what anyone else thinks, they just continue to remain faithful. And we see this all throughout Scripture. God calls Gideon, right? And what's Gideon doing? He's doing nothing significant. He's just grinding grain there at the mill, hiding from the Philistines. You have Moses. He's 80 years old. The guy can't talk. He has a speech impediment and he doesn't even want to go. And God shows up and says, you are the guy that's going to deliver my people. All he knows is shepherding. He spent 40 years just simply shepherding sheep. You have Ehud who is physically challenged. 
that everybody looks at and says, how is this guy going to deliver us from the Philistines? You have Joseph who just simply faithfully served. At one point, he was serving second in command of the armies and then of Egypt. And the next thing you know, he is in jail. How in the world is he going to get out of jail? And yet he continued just to simply serve faithfully. Nobody knew who he was. But yet God brought him up. Look at the disciples. They're a bunch of fishermen. They're a bunch of fishermen. They didn't sit around just kind of reading scripture all day. Man, they were out working with their hands. They were out fishing. Look at Paul. He's a tent maker. That's not very glamorous at all to be a tent maker. And yet we overlook all of these men. But it was God that came down, touched their hearts and their lives, said you were faithful, and guess what? Sent them on a different trajectory. It was in the field with the sheep where David learned to fight bears and lions. Are you with me? That's where he learned to fight. That's where he became a brave warrior. Have you thought about this? When he went out to face Goliath, Saul was like, hey man, there's a big old giant out there. And he's like, dude, it's like a bear. I fought guys like this before because it's a bear. I'm not worried about it. It was in the field where he practiced his harp. Have you ever thought about that? How did David get so good practicing the harp? Because if you read in the verses after, next thing you know, David is in the king's presence and he's playing his harp. How did he get good at playing the harp? Because there's nothing to do while you're watching the sheep. That's true. I'm watching the sheep. I just make sure they don't go everywhere. So I watch the sheep, and then what is there to do? Well, I'm going to play my harp. How do you think he got so good at, you know, David wrote a bulk of the Psalms? How do you think he got so good at just being able to write those Psalms, being able to write that poetry? Why? Because he's all alone. So he has time to sit around and to craft rhymes and praises and glory to God. If you're all alone... What are you going to be focusing on? I guarantee you, while David's alone, he's not fantasizing. He's not thinking impure thoughts. What is he focused on? More than likely, probably, he's focused on God. And he's got a lot of time to do it. And it was in the field where David wanted to be. It was in the field where David learned all this. stuff. It was in the field in the boredom, in the mundane day-to-day operation of life that David grew in his heart and in his love for the Lord. It was in the field, so unglamorous. He wasn't in an office kicking back, reading all these spiritual books. He wasn't in seminars. He was in the field. Just him and God hanging out. How did David learn how great and awesome and mighty God is? He didn't learn it when he was the king. He learned it when he was in the field just being a simple shepherd. Psalm 75, 7. God uh, is the, it is God who judges. He brings one down and he 
exalts another. Real quick, three ways to keep your heart right before God while you're in the field. Okay, here's the practical application. Three ways you can keep your heart right while you're in the field. Because let's be honest, for a bulk of us right here in this room, we are in the field, are we not? And we're just going through life day after day, but we must remain faithful day to day to day. And what is it? God doesn't look at our outward appearance. He looks at our heart. And so let's focus on keeping our hearts right because there will be a point in time when God will call you up to do something great for his kingdom. It may not be great anywhere else, but it will ring out in eternity. And we men, we need to be prepared to be used by God. We may never lead a nation, but we might be called upon to lead our household, to lead our neighborhood, to lead our community. And so we need to have our hearts right. So here's how you, three ways to keep your hearts right before God while you're in the field, in the mundane day-to-day uh, -day things. Number one. Be unwavering in your belief and love for Jesus. Be unwavering in your belief and your love for Jesus. No matter what happens, you must stay strong and immovable in your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. He came, he died, he rose from the dead for you and for me. And so let us continue to focus on that. Not only believe it, but also to live it. There will be trials, there will be challenges that we face. But we must remain faithful, Matthew 24, 13. But the one who stands firm in the end will be saved, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I like what George MacDonald, he said this, a man's real belief in that which he lives by. What a man believes is the thing he does. You catch that? What a man believes is the thing he does, not the thing he thinks. A real man does what he believes. Man, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your personal Lord and Savior? Are you unwavering in that belief? Because there are going to be people that will try and sway you. Number two. Choose to do what is right all the time. Choose to do what is right all the time. Even if it hurts, choose to do what is right and God-pleasing all the time. When you're faced to make a decision, choose wisely. Choose what is right and pleasing to God. You know what Mason said to Dixon? You've got to draw the line somewhere. you got to draw the line somewhere. Guys, where's the line at? Where's, the, where's God's line? Where is it right, and then where does it become sin? Find that line and make sure you're so far away from it and in the right of God. And guys, that's some stuff that when you're going through the boring, mundane part of life and your job every day, or whether you're retired and you're just kind of sitting there, it's always good to sit down and go, okay, what's right? What's the right thing to do? If you have time to think about it, hey, what's the right thing to do? What does God want me to do? 
1 Peter chapter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. John 14, 23. Jesus answered, if anybody loves me, they will keep my word. You hear that? If you love Jesus, you're going to keep his word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Theodore Roosevelt said this. Knowing what's right doesn't mean uh, much unless you do what's right. Knowing what's right doesn't mean much unless you do what's right. And then third and finally, obey what God has said in his word. See how they all kind of build on each other? Believe in Jesus. Do what is right and then obey God's word. All those things are just simple building blocks for our faith. First John chapter um, 5 verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments, get this, are not burdensome. Luke eleven twenty eight. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. To sum it all up. To bring this to a conclusion, none of us are going to be King David. None of us are going to be King David. None of us are going to do extraordinary things for a nation. But God is looking for faithful men. Men that are continuing to just stay in the field, that love Him, that are faithful to Him. And there will become a moment where God is going to call you up. And nobody may even know about it, but God does. But God does because he has created you for a purpose, and that is to serve him. And so be ready to be called up for the service of the Lord. And one day in eternity, we will all hear about it. We may not hear about it here, but one day in eternity, we will find out about it. We will know. But we got to be faithful. We have to check our hearts because there will be a time when we're sitting in the back row and God's going to call us up front. Oswald Chambers says this, All of God's people are ordinary people who have been made extraordinary by the purpose He has given them. He's given you a purpose. Remain faithful while you're out in the field. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for this day. God, thank you for the time that we could come here, we could open up your word. And God, I just ask that we would become faithful followers of you. God, we love you. May we just not say it with our words, but may we show you with our actions. And may you look in our hearts and in our lives and see that. May you see it within us. Because God, that's where it starts. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's men said, y'all have a great day. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. For more information about Cottonwood Creek Church, visit cottonwoodcreek.org. And we hope you come back to listen to future episodes of Men's Bible Study.